0: You may be seated. As you are seated, I invite you to take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11 and uh, we're continuing our way through the gospel of Matthew. It's good to see you here this morning. I hope you've had a blessed week and the Lord's uh, blessed you and encouraged you. As you make your way to a Matthew chapter 11... We're going to look at verses 25 through 30 and really study some of the sweetest words in all of Scripture. And as you make your way there, I don't know if you know this, but many of us know who C.S. Lewis is. C.S. Lewis is famous for his Chronicles of Narnia series, written multiple uh, theological works. But I don't know if you know this, but but C.S. Lewis was actually a, a poet, too. In fact, he started out writing aspiring to be a poet, and earlier in his career, he he wrote several poems, and it was something that he always kept up with, and uh, he was just a gifted poet as much as he was a gifted novelist, Uh, but he has a a poem entitled Footnote to All Prayers, and it's a wonderful little poem. I have it here in this book, Poems, by C.S. Lewis. Uh, And I thought I'd just read it to you because what he says is really relevant for what we want to talk about this morning. Uh, A footnote to all prayers by by C.S. Lewis. uh, And I'm going to do my best to, to read it how he probably intended it. He says, He whom I bow to only knows to whom I bow. When I attempt the ineffable name murmuring thou... And dream of fadian fancies and embrace in heart. Symbols I know which cannot be the thing thou art. Thus always taken at their word, all prayers blaspheme. Worshipping with frail images a folklore dream. And all men in their praying self-deceived address. The coinage of their own unquiet thoughts unless... Thou, in magnetic mercy, to thyself divert, our arrows aimed unskillfully beyond desert. And all men are idolaters, crying unheard to a deaf idol, if thou take them at their word. Take not, O Lord, our literal sense, Lord, in thy great. Unbroken speech, our limping metaphor, translate. That's a footnote to all prayers by C.S. Lewis. And uh, it's really something that uh, it gets us thinking about when we pray, are we praying to the one true God? Is the God that we have in mind the God of the Bible? Or he says, are we praying to something that is created? And he uses the phrase Fade and fancies and fadius was a greek sculptor he was well known for creating these elaborate sculptures and so c.s lewis essentially saying god only knows whom i'm actually praying to when i pray and there's a good chance that i might be praying to a false god that i've created in my own mind and he says thus when men pray are self-deceived and they address something that they've created unless what he says, unless God, and then he uses this phrase, there's two things he does that I love. He talks about God's magnetic mercy. Isn't that a great phrase, magnetic mercy? That when we pray, we, God in his magnetic mercy attracts those prayers that are perhaps not what they should be and directs them beyond the desert. C.S. Lewis says, we're aiming our prayers In the desert. And unless God takes his magnetic mercy and draws the the metal in the arrows to himself, he says, if God didn't do that, we would be praying to a deaf idol uh, if we were taken at our word. So then he says, Oh Lord, take not our literal sense when we pray, but in your great, unbroken speech, in that way that God understands himself, he says, Our limping metaphor translate so something about God's mercy translate our frail prayers into something that he hears and that's that's biblical right when we talk about the Holy Spirit helping us in prayer it says that even when we don't know what to pray the Holy Spirit helps us in our praying but I I love that poem it's a beautiful poem and the whole point of it is that sometimes we as human beings have very little awareness of just how skewed our picture of God's character actually is we have a misrepresentation of who God is. And so, when we think about this, what, what Lewis's poem does is raise some very serious questions. How do we know God? How do we know that the God that we're praying to is the one true God? Not just how do we know Him, what's the way that we know Him, but, but how do we know Him rightly? How do we know Him as He is? And then lastly, if we are able to know Him... And if we're able to know Him rightly, what is He actually like? Who is He? What is His heart? Is God capricious? Is He easily uh, disturbed? Is, is He a wicked God, a vile God, a cruel God? Is He ruthless or petty? Whatever your answer is to that question, God is blank. How do you know it's right? Right? So, we all have these images and perhaps for some of us, these images that we have in our mind are not true to who He is. They're, they're actually more shaped by our experience, whether, whether it was an abusive father or an abusive husband or whether it was a, a father figure that we had. But, but in the tapestry in your mind, the tapestry of God that you create, uh, there are sometimes threads that you use in this tapestry that are not accurately reflecting who God is. And so, you see, there's a logic to what we've been talking about the last few weeks. Two weeks ago, we talked about Jesus doesn't meet all our expectations, right? He is who He is. And then last week, we talked about even if He did, we'd still reject Him because we're sinners. We're, we're depraved, right? We're lost. But then we get to our text this morning... And if it's true that Jesus doesn't meet our expectations, and if it's true that even if He did, we'd reject Him, then the question becomes, what hope do we have of knowing Him, knowing Him rightly, and knowing Him as He truly is? These are the three questions I want us to ask and answer this morning. Who is God? How do we know that we're knowing Him rightly? And then thirdly, what is God like? And I think our text... Is a perfect text to answer those questions. When we look in Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 through 30, the text really divides up into to two paragraphs, two parts. And in verses 25 and 27, we see that Jesus talks about two types of knowledge there is perfect knowledge, and then there is revealed knowledge. So this is important for what Jesus says there's perfect knowledge, and then there's revealed knowledge. But then in the second part, in verses 28 through 30, in light of these two types of knowledge, Jesus invites us to to know and to rest in Him. So we are invited to know God as He truly is, what He's like, and we are invited to do that by resting in His Son, Jesus Christ. So... Listen, I I want you to leave here this morning confident that you know who God is. And that you can trust what you know about God and how you have been told it. And in knowing that, you will rest. That's the whole point of this passage. If we know God as He truly is, as Jesus, in Jesus, and know Him as He truly is, then it will lead to us wanting to rest in Him. And so let's look at what Jesus says in verse 25, beginning. uh, He says, at that time, this is Matthew saying, At that time Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, because this was your good pleasure, all things have been entrusted to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, in anyone to whom the Son desires to reveal Him, so Jesus starts out with this praise. He says, "I praise You, Lord of heaven and earth." He, God acts as He pleases because He is the one sovereign God. He is Lord of heaven and earth. Everything that spans between heaven and earth, God is Lord over. And so Jesus says, I praise you because you're the Lord of heaven and earth. You can do what you want. You're God. And then what did God decide to do? Why does he praise the Father? He says, because you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. So these things that Jesus is talking about, he could be referring to the things he just said or the things he's going to say. We don't have to nail that down. The point is is that God has determined Look at what it says in verse 26 because this was your good pleasure. God delighted in not revealing and not showing himself to the wise and to the intelligent. He thought it was good. It's a knowledge of God that is not attained, we cannot attain it by reasoning our way, by philosophizing our way to God. God is not like a a, a destination on a road map that you can just kind of intuit your way to, okay? So think of it like this, all right? I hope this doesn't get my, my man card revoked. I'm going to let out a secret of the man community, okay? All right, guys, just bear with me. We can have a meeting afterwards if you want to kick me out. Ladies, when you've been riding with us at least once and we actually got to the destination and you said, How did you know how to get here? And we just go, Well, we got lucky. It was either a left or a right, and we guessed based on gut feeling and general sense of direction, and we somehow, by God's grace, got there, all right? We faked it until we made it, okay? That's not how we can do with Jesus and knowing God. We can't just end up there by sheer luck. Notice Jesus says that this is a knowledge that was revealed to infants. Now, he's not talking about literal babies, but he's talking about the type of person that receives the teaching of Jesus. Have you ever uh, talked to a child and they ask you, Mom, Dad, what does this mean? And you say, well, it means this. And they just go, oh, okay. And they go on their merry way, right? That's the kind of reception Jesus is talking about. God has so chosen to hide the truths of who He he is from the the wise and the discerning. Those who would hear it and say, well, I don't like that. I have a couple questions. No, He he reveals it to those who are willing to receive it. Not those who are going to critique Jesus because He doesn't meet their expectations. So there is this sense in which there is a knowledge to be gained. But then look at verse 27. He says, all things have been entrusted to me by my Father. All of these things. So the Father entrusts all of this to Jesus. And then it says, no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. Okay? So how do we know God as He is? You have three options. Okay? Number one, you're the Father. And you know yourself perfectly. And you know the Son perfectly. That's one way. The second way is that you're the Son. And you know yourself perfectly, and you know the Father perfectly, right? That's what he says. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. So those are the two ways, and so far, it's not looking good for any of us, is it? But then there's a third way. So there's a perfect knowledge between the Father and the Son, the Son and the Father, but then there's revealed knowledge. It says no one knows the Father except the Son, and no one knows the Son except the Father, Or the Father except the Son. And then look at this. And anyone to whom the Son desires to reveal Him. And so Jesus is making a very uh, comprehensive statement here. Saying that if you want to know the Father, I am the one who reveals Him to you. I know Him perfectly and I reveal Him perfectly. Now, this echoes what Paul says in Colossians, right? Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature, the fullness of God, dwelt in Jesus Christ. He was the God-man. If we want to know what the Father looks like, we look to the Son, okay? So whatever is said about Jesus, who he is, what's his heart, is true of him and the Father, And Jesus is the one that reveals that. So what we do with this is we have to understand that we know the Father only through His Son, Jesus Christ. Okay? That's the point that Jesus is saying. And this is a revealed knowledge. This is something that we cannot reason our way to. Because when we get in verses 28 through 30, what we see is something we probably would never expect. If we were to create a God that we liked, this is not the type of God we would create. Look at what it says in verse 28. He says, we know the Father through Jesus, His Son. That's the only way. It has to be revealed to us. The Son reveals the Father to us. So if that's the only way we know God, what's the obvious logical application? Jesus tells us. The information in verses 25 through 27 leads to the invitation in verse 28. Come to me. If we want to know the Father through His Son, Jesus Christ, we have to come to Him. And notice who He appeals to. He says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Why? For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So how do we know God? It's through Jesus Christ. How do we know God truly and rightly? Because Jesus knows the Father perfectly and reveals him perfectly. So then what kind of God is he? He's a God who looks at us and says come stop right there and let that sink in that he is a God that is holy righteous perfect and just and yet he will look and speak to sinners and say come come To me. What an amazing thought that God would invite us to come, that Jesus would invite us to come, and Jesus knows who needs to hear this. He says, All of you who are weary and burdened. For many of us, before we came to know Christ, our life could be characterized as weary and burdensome. We had no Rest. What kind of rest is Jesus talking about? Look at what he says at the end of verse 39. You will find rest for your souls. Okay, so we have this information about God. We know it's right. Jesus reveals him. We are called to come to him. And if we come to him, we'll find rest. So there, there's a little, a little gap in there. How does coming to him lead to rest? Are you with me? Like what, what connects those two? It's because of who Jesus is and who God is. You see, Jesus doesn't see you weary and burdened and then you come to him and then he lays a greater burden on you. Jesus doesn't see you as weary and tired and broken and then you come and he tries to break you more he doesn't see who about to snap and then grabs both sides and tears them apart. No, what does it say? Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn from me. Now, here's where we have to just, just delight in this. Why should we come to him? Why should we take up his yoke? Why should we learn from him? Why can we find rest in him? Look at what it says, Verse 29. Because I am lowly and humble in heart. What does that mean? This is the one place in the Gospels where Jesus opens up and He says, You want to know my heart? You want to know what gets me out of the bed in the morning? You want to know what my over-driving purpose and desire is, if you want to know what I feel and what I am in the deepest part of me towards you who are sinning, broken, weary, burdened, what is it? He says, in my heart of hearts, I am, and this is a statement about himself, right? I am lowly and humble. So how does that give us rest? It gives us rest because in Christ, He has paid the penalty that we deserve for our sin, right? We we are sinners separated from God, and we deserve judgment. We deserve wrath. But Jesus took our place on the cross, and that was poured out on Him for us. So we come to Him, we're forgiven, we're cleansed, we're adopted into God's family. So where does the rest come in? Because he's lowly and humble in heart. So let, let's just put it in the simplest terms. Jesus never, ever looks at you when you've sinned again, when you failed again when you've committed that sin you promised just yesterday you wouldn't do again Jesus is not standing around the corner with his arms crossed tapping his toe fighting back anger imagine you're sitting in your, your chair or wherever it is you go when you're struggling you've got your hands in your, in your hands your head in your hands And then you hear somebody come in the room in that moment and you look up and it's Jesus. What look does he have on his face? Is he angry? Is he frustrated? Is he clenching his jaw? Does he have his brow tight? Is his face red, his ears red? No. No whether it's the first time or the millionth time. You look at Jesus and he looks at you as someone who is lowly and humble in heart. So what does that mean? It means that every single one of us, every single time can go to him and he receives us gently, tenderly, lovingly humbly. The reality is Jesus isn't in a separate room walking in there when you're sitting at that table unsure about your salvation. When you're sitting at that table wondering how in the world can I do that again? Jesus is right there with his arm around you saying I'm here. I know. We're going to get through this together. So now, if that's the promise, we begin to see how that gives us rest. (laughs) We don't have to make Him do that. We don't have to convince Him to do that. He is not that based on our performance. He is who He is, and that's who God is. Some of you here this morning have this image of God that, that it's like you, you have to be dragged into His presence because you sinned and you think God is just going to beat and pound on the table and, and just give me you know, a good talking to and He's going to give me my, my lashes or whatever. And, and so you don't come. But that's not what Jesus says He is, is it? The way we rest is by knowing that we can always, every single time, come to him and he receives us gently. ESV probably says gentle and lowly in heart. And then that's why you can say you will find rest for your souls and his yoke is easy and his burden is light. So how do we know God? How do we know him rightly and what's he like? The Lord Jesus is gentle, lowly, and humble in heart. And we can come to him anytime, day or night, and he receives us with open arms. Do you see how that can lead you to rest? There's nothing that we can change about that. We rest in it. We enjoy it. We delight in it. And then that's why Jesus says, take up my yoke and learn from me. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do do you see how this is different than I I can only come to Jesus based on how my week was or I can only come to Jesus if I get all these things in order? At no point in this text does Jesus say you have to get your life fixed and in order and get your act together before you come. I said yesterday in the men's breakfast, we were talking about this passage a little bit. And I said, do we really believe his yoke is easy and his burden is light? Because if we do, if we understand that to mean that Jesus did everything for us to be saved, that God did everything for us to be saved, that God is sovereign in our salvation, and that we can come to him that he always welcomes us. He's lowly and humble in heart. Then we begin to see how the yoke is easy and the burden is light. And then we begin to want to learn from him. To take that yoke upon you. I mean, what believer in this room does not want this right now? Right here. So let me just ask you. Is, does following Jesus feel like an easy yoke and a light burden? Now, I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying that life just is never has a problem and we don't, inc- we don't encounter difficult circumstances. But when it comes to our souls, when it comes to resting, His yoke is easy and His burden is light. When we begin to feel like it's not, maybe we need to ask ourselves, what am I getting disordered? What am I, what am I not getting right? One of the things that I used to do when I was in uh, middle school, was, I would stay after school at the, the Boys and Girls Club at the school I went to. And one of the things I, I did was I played a lot of basketball. And I had a nickname because, uh, well, I'll tell you my nickname and see if you can guess why. My nickname was Q-Ball. Can you guess why? No? I was the only white guy. So, so they called me Q-Ball. Uh, and, and we would play, and we would do every, you know, and, um, you know, it was one of those things where the more you did it, the, the better you got at it, but it was a joy. It was something that I loved to do, you know, and uh, I wouldn't say that, you know, I was a baller, because, uh, I mean, I could, I mean, I had a pretty nice, I was a baller, I could do a nice jump shot, right? I had a good three-point shot, but here's what I want us to think about one of the things that i that i learned playing basketball at a, at a young age and in, was the backboard is your friend like i know swishes are you know that's what everybody wants right you want the swish you want the sound you know you want all that but here's the thing the backboard is your friend we when we think about this uh this truth that he is who he is That that is the backboard of our life. It is something that is there to help us. It redirects us. It is a friend to us. And so when we seek to follow Jesus, we come to him. Maybe maybe we're shooting from a a, a shot we know that's bad or, or we miss a layup. The backboard is still there. It's still there to guide us. It's still there to assure us. And it makes basketball easier. I don't know, have you ever seen Australian basketball? The hoop is smaller, and they have no backboards. So you're essentially just, you know, it's like a carnival game almost. I mean, you watch it on YouTube. There's, there's videos of it. That's, that's what it's like to try to play, to my, in my opinion. I guess other people are better at it. That's what it's like to try to do this life without the backboard versus with it. When we come to Jesus and rest in Him, His yoke is easy and His burden is light. So we want to take some time and respond to what we've heard. and We want to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And one of the things that I want to encourage you to remember that as we have a time of examination, uh, this is a time for you to, to do business with the Lord and to say, I'm resting I'm resting, Jesus. I'm, I'm resting in you, what you've done, and who you are. When you think about what you're getting ready to do, in the past when you've taken the Lord's Supper, have you envisioned Jesus standing here waiting to say, I want you to get all your dirty laundry out before you come up here? That's a heavy burden, right? Right? But instead, remember when we talked in the, the sermon series on the church, that when we take the Lord's Supper, the Lord is meeting us. And so I, I want you to confess your sins, absolutely. I want you to examine yourselves, but not examine your, your fruitfulness or your faithfulness, but, but to examine are you resting in Christ's faithfulness? Are you receiving Him as we take the Lord's Supper? So... As we've done in the past, we're going to have—excuse me—we're going to have a time of examination. This is going to be a time for you to do whatever business you feel like you need to do with the Lord. Uh, and then, when you're ready, come up and take the elements back to your seat. We'll have them spread out here. Come and take the elements back to your seat, and then we will take them all together. So I'm going to pray for you, and then we'll have a time of examination for you as well. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and how we are encouraged to rest. Oh Lord, the gospel is such good news to us that that Christ did everything. And Lord, we are the the beneficiaries of that great grace that has been shown to us. Oh Lord, we've we've all failed this week. There's no question about that. Lord, we know we come unworthily and yet Really, the point of the Lord's Supper is to remember how we are made worthy because of Christ. God, how we can rest in what you did on the cross and through your resurrection. And how we can receive and fellowship and commune with you, Lord Jesus, through the Lord's Supper. Holy Spirit, work in our hearts and show us areas where perhaps we do need to confess our sins.